makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Ambeto washtelo tayan wachianke chante washte na pechu zapiello le unkipiki he washtelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hand with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio and Teokasin Ghost Horse sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopas in the lands of the Muncie speaking Lenape. This is an all native hosted. All Native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Who will find peace with the lands? The future of humankind lies waiting for those who will come to understand their lives and take up their responsibilities to all living things. Who will listen to the trees, the animals, and the birds, the voices of the places of the land, as the long-forgotten peoples of the respective continents rise and begin to reclaim their ancient heritage, they will discover the meaning of the lands of their ancestors. That is when the invaders of the North American continent will finally discover that for this land, God is red. That quote is from God is Red and authored by Vine Deloria Jr. in 1972. First Voices brings attention to the 50th anniversary of the publication and the impactful awakening of native consciousness within Turtle Island or the North American continent. We'll be speaking with Dr. Tink Tinker, who is a Clifford Baldridge Emeritus Professor of American Indian Cultures and Religious Traditions at the Isle of School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He is a citizen of the Wasaji Nation, or commonly known as Osage Nation. Tink is committed to a scholarly endeavor that takes seriously both the liberation of Indian peoples from their historical oppression as colonized communities and the liberation of Euro-Christian white Americans, the historic colonizers and oppressors of Indian peoples, whose self-narrative typically avoids naming the violence committed against Indians in favor of a romance narrative that justifies their Euro-Christian occupancy of Indian lands. You will also hear Tink Tinker refer to 
American Indians, Native Americans, indigenous peoples as Indians, depending on the political climate and how indigenous peoples are viewed in the Western Hemisphere. So the term Indians began in 1492. That's the history of how Americans or Europeans begin and how much they hang on to misnomers. Join us as we discuss God is Red with Tink Tinker. This is very, how's the word apropos that you come on because you did the foreword to God is Red by Vine Deloria Jr. And what I remember, Tink, is that he was one of the top 40 authors in the 20th century. The ideas, the perspective, the aspects, even today, they honor us and helping those of us who can think and 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 somewhat literate in the English language can read and understand through the academia that he came out with. But it was his experience in life that brought him to that place to live within that, uh, be surrounded by the colonizer, so to speak, but actually see where his heart was all the time and and, and be in relationship with, with the people always constantly. And you knew him. You worked with him and you a lot of good ideas came with, with working with him. From that point on, I just want to ask you if you would honor us by telling your experience with Vine and talk about really important things that maybe we're missing. Vine Deloria was the dean of Indian academics in the late 20th century, probably for all of the 20th century. Some of the earlier writers were still bogged down in using uh, colonialist language and categories of cognition. Vine is making a, an effort to break loose of that. It doesn't get completely there because that's hard work. We're still working on it. But when I started my PhD work, there were 10 Indian people across the continent with DR in front of their names. So there were not many role models that year that I started PhD work was the year that uh, God is Red came out. And it became kind of a secret Bible to me as I was trying to hold two things in tension, the white academic world and the American Indian traditional world. Then by later that decade, I, I actually met Vine uh, for the first time at a conference. And from then on, we crossed paths in many conferences. When I came to Isla School of Theology in 1985, I found out after the fact that the faculty had turned to Vine Deloria to ask Vine about myself and that Vine had written a very laudatory letter about me. It was filled with lies, but they were positive lies. <laughs> And that, that was fine. Always working to help younger Indian people advance in his own world of academics. Some academics, even Indian academics, are so fragile that they have to be constantly proving themselves as the smartest person in the room at any given moment. That was never Deloria. Deloria was always advancing other Indian people. And those he went after <laughs> were the white academics who were making stuff up as they went along. So God is Red was the beginning. He wrote a couple dozen books. And, of course, the first book he wrote was Custer Died for Your Sins. 
But Goddess Red is the one that became the benchmark that Indian people still turn to as a starting point for trying to figure out the American Indian worldview. And it is, it's always been my starting point as well. That doesn't mean we're stuck with what Vine said in 1973 or revised in 1993. Vine always expected that we would pick up where he left off and carry his thinking further than he did. In in God is Red, for the first time, he broaches the possibility in, in modern Indian discourse that Indian people did not have a word for God. But he wasn't perfectly sure of that. So he assigned me the task of writing that essay so he could footnote it. And unfortunately, I didn't get around to it until after his death. And I really felt badly about that. But it's clear to me that all the words that purportedly mean supreme being, creator, in any Indian language are words that were picked by the missionaries in order to satisfy their own political, theological, ecclesial goals. So in Osage, for instance, every Osage today seems to think that Wakonda actually means God. Unfortunately, when the missionaries picked Wakonda to mean God, they obliterated the original meaning of that word and made it nearly unusable for Osages today. We have to go back and, and reclaim it and thoroughly decolonize the notion that it has somehow references a supreme being. But Vine pointed the way. And even if we go beyond Vine, he's the one that pointed the way. Other folks such as Leslie Marmon Silko have thoughts, of course. And, and when I'm thinking that this will be appreciated by a future generation when U.S. US history ceases to be fabricated for the glory of the white man. That's one thing that I really think about. And I, if I came from that mentality of, of the Western European, I would say, well, that's a little bit harsh. That That's mean-spirited. And yet it, it, it's right to the truth because it needs to be, like you said, we're not really talking about the truth. We're beating around the bush and we'll never get to the truth unless we really see why we have to change our language, as you said, codify our language to accept their meaning of what we mean as creation or the creator and even as God. So losing meaning of our, ourselves into a language uh, where, where Vine did not seemingly lose himself in academia. I think that's the, the proof is God is read. Well, I think he went into academia already committed to not letting academia overcome him and, and claim him. You know, he spent the 60s uh, resurrecting uh, the moribund uh, National Congress of American Indians and giving it new life. So he was on the ground working as an activist. He did a law degree here at uh, the University of Colorado Boulder. And as a lawyer, he's writing all this stuff like Goddess Red wrote, Custer died for your sins when he's already a law school student and writing it with a clear perspective on somehow cutting loose American Indians from uh, from these academic knowledges 
that, that prove to be invented knowledges. So when you say invented languages or knowledges, it's like they're they're making it making it up to get by in society. Well, I have examples of family members as well as maybe you do too, where people have found sanctuary in Christianity. People don't want to come out of that safe feeling, so they're not willing to take the risk to be who they are as Native people. And I think that's one thing influence that this book has had on me because of that Christian valued was the only value there offered and forced upon us really as natives on a reservation. And I could say that in, when I was a child in 1968, there was a van that went throughout the reservation on the Cheyenne River, and they had a little thermometer on the side of that van painted. And it said by August 28th of that year, 1968, they will have a total of maybe 5,000 members Right now, they only have 1,200, and they were going about the reservations looking for for Christian to, to, to convert them to Mormonism, to Mormons. And a lot were, lot fell into that because they were being offered, you know, they were taught, being talked about a good, good place who had ear candy given to them, as well as here's some new clothes. And so all of this came into play, and I couldn't cross the bridge. Yeah, right. Right. I would, in defense of Leslie Soko's comment, I've always argued that the vast majority, the most popular histories written in the United States about the United States history has been in the genre of romance. It's been a clear attempt to romanticize the beginnings and the development of the United States in order to demonstrate the righteousness, to use a Christian word, of the United States. In order to do that, you have to make stuff up. You have to exonerate those who committed murder on the frontier. What Barbara Mann, a Seneca scholar, calls the serial murder of Indian people on the frontier. She's talking Ohio, Ohio River, Ohio Territory and the Ohio Confederacy and the, the war, you know, George Washington's war against Indians. Uh, the second front in the Revolutionary War was not against the British. It was against Indian people who held, held territory that Washington himself had speculative investments in. Uh, we should add illegal speculative investments <laughs> uh, since, since the land was already held by Indian people. Well, you have to romanticize, and, and Washington is the most popular U.S. president ever, the first and most popular. Never mind that he was also the most wealthy because of those speculative land investments. Our job is to go back and recover the reality underneath that romance and demonstrate that Washington was as much a, a savage Christian murderer as was Andrew Jackson or any of the others in actuality. But we have to crack you know, the nut of that romance, that happy picture of the foundation of America these uh, American historians have painted. And they're the ones that sell books. There are occasionally more critical historians these days, but they don't sell that many books. They're academics. They're lucky to sell 500, 1,000, 1,500 books. They don't sell... 500,000 books. 
I was thinking about what you're saying about the uncovering the reality of romanticization. I see the picture of the, the white woman goddess floating over the lands, taking over and bringing progress, technology, industrialization, the manifest destiny, really. And I'm thinking overkill, overkill on religion, overkill on just about many, many, many things, including democracy and not even understanding the origins of it. And I go back to a small incident in the book. I remember that these Native people were, were sitting, were standing, were at a funeral over the grave. It was finished. And one of the Native women came forward and put an orange on the grave. The Episcopalian priest came along right away and snatched it and said, do you think that they're going to come back from the dead and eat it? And one of the men came forward and said, when they come to smell the flowers. And that was that was the end of it. See, this is the, the differences, right? We we yeah. understand life yeah. that so well that that's not romanticized, but yet they romanticize it because it doesn't belong here. It belongs in a place called heaven. Yeah, right, right. But those religionists, those Christian missionaries, they do the same job of romanticizing. They just romanticize themselves and demonize the other, namely American Indians. So they demonize the business of feeding our ancestors. I was told by a sister when I tried to set out a spirit plate at one of our family meals back on the reservation. Uh, and I still do it. They just don't know I do it. We don't do that anymore as Osages because Osages are all Christian. And I said, what? Modern Osages no longer want a relationship with their ancestors? <laughs> because that's what feeding is. It's maintaining that relationship with our ancestors. When I put food out here, I'm constantly thinking about coffee that my mother and my brother loved so much and couldn't live without, or, or, or the hot chili that, that my dad loves uh, e even still. And, and we're inviting the men to come and be a part of our life now to continue that relationship. We don't do that anymore because our ancestors don't matter to us. Well, when you romanticize this salvation of the individual through Jesus Christ, I guess it doesn't matter anymore because all that matters is whether I'm going to heaven or not, whether I have salvation or not. Whereas as Vine already was demonstrating for Indian people, it's about community. It's about the people, about all of us. It's not in Goddess Red, but, and I can't remember where it is, but Vine told a story about a, a, a missionary who was not having any luck in an Indian village, couldn't get a single convert, finally decided to concentrate on the chief. And he made inroads with the chief and finally had the chief agreeing to be baptized. After months of teaching him painstakingly, the day of the baptism came, and outside of this little church stood the whole village with the chief. And the minister said to the chief, why are all these people here? And the chief said they came to be baptized. And the minister said, I can't baptize them because they haven't been taught yet. And the chief said, oh, my bad, I misunderstood. You go ahead and teach them and uh, 
when you finish teaching them, I'll be baptized with them. <laughs> it's all of us or none of us. That, that reminds me of, of the story of Chief Joseph, too, also, I think he referred to in God is Red by Vine Deloria um, Jr., is the, the native view of religion, which is the under, underpinning of, of God is Red. And I think about this, Tink, is when Chief Joseph was confronted by the, well, yeah, commissioner back in 1888 or something, where he was arguing, basically trying to get Chief Joseph to accept a a school for education for the children. He said, I, we don't want schools. We don't want schools. And and uh, the commissioner wanted to know why. So Chief Joseph re reminded him that if we, if we accept schools and it's going to teach us to, so we'll be building a church soon, basically. And then that will teach us how to argue over God. And we don't do that as Native people. <laughs> I love that story. All yep. these years. Yep. Yep. So when, when we learn about God, as you said, your people don't do that anymore. Even our thoughts don't do that anymore. We don't go there anymore. They're not original anymore. They're often coming out of um, even books or the Bible or places like that to kind of distract us. So a friend of mine said, you know, Teokson, we, we speak in a language that is present phobic. We're not here. We're in heaven or we're back there somewhere. Either end of it yeah. is reality. We're not here anymore. What do you think about that? Because I think Wine brought that out in, in me. I think that's right. I, I, I think that uh, Christianity teaches Indians to live for some future, some unknown future, except that uh, the, the missionaries want to make it known by saying you're going to be in heaven with, with Jesus, right? Whereas our people always lived in the present. In the now, everything is now. Some Indian languages were told even envision the future and past as now. And they speak of it as happening now long ago or happening now in the future. And I suspect if we live for the now, of course, the modern world would collapse because capitalism wouldn't work anymore. You know, collecting, collecting money, currency even abstract digital amounts of currency over against some future wouldn't be necessary because we're only living for the now. And of course, our ancestors, if they needed food, they planted it. If they needed food, they arranged a hunting party and went out and, and harvested you know, our animal relatives, you know, buffalo, deer, elk, whatever, and fed the people. And we're grateful to the Buffalo Nation for the food that it allowed us to take and live in the present with that sense of gratitude rather than living in the comfort that somehow in the distant future, I'm going to die and go to heaven. And it's, it's amazing to me how, you know, you can go open the book and I said before, and then you find something, not just an answer, but not even a solutionism. These weren't solutions to problems. This, this was that our ways as Native people weren't accepted in, in the vernacular, if there is one, in the English language and maybe other languages, but in American thought processes. And as you know, there is this chapter on thinking in time and space. Now, this was, you know, the other ones were pretty much about American imagination, Indians of the American imagination, the Indian movement, the religious challenge. We talked about that a little bit. But thinking in time and space, 
And that's looked at in a totally different manner, even up to where there is a problem with creation is one of his chapters too. Would you take us through what Vine was talking about when he talked about thinking and named his chapters, thinking in time and space? That, that for me was a critical, critical read back in the 70s and helped shape my thinking and the development of my thinking through the 80s and up to the very present. The Euro-Christian world is a temporal world. It's rooted in time. That's why future is so important. Past is so important uh, to, to, to our Euro-Christian relatives. Christianity is a, is a theology of time. Um, you know, they have all this time language like eschatology, what happens at the end of time, what happens at the end of your life. What Vine identified clearly for us is that Indian people are spatial people, that all our metaphors are primarily rooted in spatiality rather than temporality. The temporality is secondary to uh, spatiality. So your Christian religion follows a temporal calendar from uh, Advent to Easter to Pentecost and beyond. And, and they have a seven-day week with a temporal religious ceremony on uh, the first day of the week on Sunday without fail. And then they teach Indian people you have to go to church on Sunday. Uh, you're a sinner if you miss church on Sunday. Whereas our people, ceremonial life was spatially configured. Whether it's a, a more everyday ceremony like Eongli, sitting with the stones, or what Lakotas call Inipi, what white people call Swetlach, it's spatial. So that in, in federal prisons, where I used to uh, be a constant visitor back in the uh, 80s and 90s, inmates, whether they were Lakota or Anishinaabeg, would fight over whether the opening to the lodge was going to be to the east or to the west. <laughs> yeah, it's spatial, yeah. e even if they don't agree. Sundance is spatial. It happens at a particular time of the year when the sun is in a particular spatial relationship with the land where the ceremony is held. And the Sundance Arbor is created with gates to the east where the dancers come in in the morning. And the Sundances I've been a part of, a gate to the west where Sundancers can retreat in between dance rounds to catch a little shade during the heat of the day, uh, gates to the south and the north, where you might have a drum on one side or the other. It's spatial. Everything for us is uh, about spatial relationships. It's about the land, our grandmother, and that particular space of the land where our people reside, our territory, not our property, because properties a word that comes only with temporality because it comes with the notion of capitalist investment, investing for the future, ownership. No, for us, it's about living in the present, in this territory that is our monchon, our territory, where, where our villages are.
And we're in constant relationship then with peoples whose camps, villages, surround us on all sides, the Pawnees to the north, the Caddo's to the south, Kansas to the, to the north, the Lakotas to the north and the east, Cheyennes and Arapahoes, um, with full respect, even though from time to time we may tussle over a boundary here or there because they got a little bigger and we got a little smaller or the other way around, perfectly natural, and they were usually sorted out very quickly without much bloodshed in, in the Osage ceremony, the charcoal ceremony. If one person gets killed, it's a major travesty for the whole village. And the whole military contingent is not allowed to re-enter the village until they've uh, explained what happened, what went wrong, and then did ceremony in order to purify themselves before coming back in the village. So Vine did that. He uh, uh, clarified for us that we needed to be talking about place rather than time. The place where a ceremony is held, not the time. As I tell my students, the whole notion of Indian time is a racist imagination of white people. Our meetings always start on time. When everyone gets there, it's time. And when everybody's done speaking, it's over. And that's the first half of Dr. Tinker's interview regarding the 50th anniversary of Vine Deloria Jr.'s God is Red. We'll get back to you in a moment. Meanwhile, you're listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Teoksin Ghost Horse. Oh, yeah. 
Once Upon a Time in the West by Dire Straits. This is First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokazin Ghost Horse. Welcome back to the second half of First Voices Radio's interview and discussion with Dr. Tink Tinker. And we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of the release of God is Red by Vine Deloria Jr. And we continue to talk about time and space beginning that Dr. Tinker distinguishes so well. And now back to the interview with Dr. Tink Tinker. This, this is so timely. Last night I had a, a fire out in a place in the mountains here in the, the Hudson in a Valley called Miniwaska, which is a Lakota word meaning falling water, pure falling water, basically. And it's out here in Lenape country. I'm like, well, how did that get here? But the thing that happened is everybody showed up non-natives, natives, a couple of natives, and everybody was talking. I was sitting there just waiting for everybody to calm down naturally. So the fire itself was calling. And then after half an hour, and it, it just happened naturally. The fire called everybody <laughs> with silence. And they were stunned, but you could hear them thinking, what, when are we going to start talking? So about five to seven minutes, there was silence. Then the familiarity of that silence came in where now we can talk because we got permission from the fire to say words. And I, I like that. And I want to go to maybe giving the people who are listening something to chew on is we live in a world in this society of conservative and liberal. And some of the things that Vine described as sort of the attitudes where conservative and liberal terms that initially describe political philosophies because everything is political to us. And they have taken on the aspect of being able to stand for cultural attitudes um, of fairly distinct content. And I'm reading here, liberals appear to have more sympathy for humanity, while conservatives worship corporate freedom and self-help doctrines underscoring individual responsibility. The basic philosophical differences between liberals and conservatives are not fundamental. However, because both find in the idea of history a thesis by which they can validate their ideas, and that goes back to them looking for their identity. Why are we here? Where are we going to? And then yet they develop sort of psychological alibis to not be here where they make up mantras like be here now, right? They practice these things because they can't live them. That's right. That's right. It's counterintuitive. That's why it becomes a mantra. Because intuitively, they're living for a future. It still blows me away that that it started with a creation story for them, which is a problem for us, it seems, because it seems to, to me, that seemed to, like that was the end, that was the beginning and the end all, that we follow that storyline And it's proven that there are millions, I say millions because I'm stretching it, of creation stories out there. But yet in the creation stories of many Native people, like, okay, we come from Pleiades. That's taken into a new age because we can, people listening to you and I could say, well, that's romanticizing the Native people. And you're talking about a life that doesn't exist anymore. And it's new agey what you're talking about. It's, It's something that we can't control anymore. And it's it's outside of the box thinking that you're talking about. And it's always their placement of us out away from them because they really don't want us in that box because we can't fit. 
Yeah. I would say that the whole notion of creation story is fraught with difficulty because there is no creation story in any Indian community. Maybe in a particular Teoshpai or clan, there's a definitive story, but it's different from the next clan over. And there's a difference in the, in the story structure itself between what Indian people have always told and what your Christians tell as a creation story. And it's interesting to go back and look at the old collection of Indian creation stories by anthropologists because they reshape our creation stories to look like theirs. And Osages have bought wholly into that so that our creation story now looks like something like theirs structurally, whereas it never was. Indian creation stories are about a process. They're about a place and how a place gets started. But it's not the beginning of time. It's not the beginning of everything. When Sky Woman comes down in those Northeast stories where you're living now, she comes from somewhere. And she comes to a world that's already in existence, even though it's all water. But it's still there and teeming with life. Uh, there are birds because a pair of eagles catch her and stop her from falling into the lake and dying. And they set her down on the back of a turtle. And then all these water animals, otters, muskrats, and the like, take turns trying to swim to the bottom of the, of the water to find earth to put on the back of the turtle. And it's only the muskrat who comes up with dirt on his nose and puts it on the back of the turtle. And then Sky Woman can begin to spread that dirt and plant her seeds. But it's not over then, because she has a daughter who helps her with this. And her daughter has twins, and they kind of finish the job. So who is the creator? Is it Sky Woman? Is it Lynx Woman? Is it one of the two twins? Well, one anthropologist erased the women. And the creator becomes one of the two twins because they divide the two twins into a good twin and an evil twin. And it's the good twin who is the creator and then becomes, you know, the Christian supreme being kind of figure. Crazy stuff. But for us, it was all spatial from the very beginning, not temporal, not a very beginning, but in fact, the beginning of life on this place that we call Turtle Island. Well, Vine set that up. He didn't get there, but he set it up. He made it possible for us to go back and do that work. Really honored to, that you're talking about these things. Some of the things you're saying aren't accepted very well, even these, these days. When I first picked his book up in 92 and really read it for what it is, Orth, another chapter stood out, the natural and hybrid peoples. And what it said that certain religions, especially in the East, that these gods controlled anything human, historical, or political situation, but they never regarded natural law as being part of that control. And when we unable to direct the activities of the physical world, which is like today, we, we, we're trying to control the weather. Some people say it's karmic, the climate change, the climate damage that many Native people are 
communicating to me is that we are living that climate change. We are living their karmic of what they're trying to do by controlling nature, which we can never do eventually. And so a lot of listeners would want to know how, because we can say we discovered, as I would say hybrid people, we discovered permaculture. And it's always been a native thing. We don't even have a word for it. It's just part of living it. But they're practicing permaculture because this is how much you're losing. It's at practice this and practice this and practice that. But they don't really live it because there's no backdrop or background for living it. But because of the displacement. So I'm thinking about the natural peoples and the hybrid peoples, even our own. We have hybrids now that aren't really natural. That's, That's colonization at work. I mean, that's, that's what colonization does. It creates hybrids. And it's not about mixing bloodlines. It's not about genetics. I might end up arguing with Vine on that one if he were still here. But, but it's about mixing worldviews. Uh, and our job, I think, at this late date in colonization is to go back and reclaim the, the original worldview of our peoples. Hard to do because so many of the ceremonies are now gone. So many of the stories are lost to us. So many of the songs are gone. But they'll come back. I'm reminded of another, one of those early leaders, Alfonso Ortiz from San Juan Pueblo, who when he finished his PhD at Princeton, why at Chicago, he was teaching at Princeton. He went back summers to his village, the San Juan Pueblo, and began visiting with a medicine man who lived next door to where he grew up, his parents' home in in, in the Pueblo. And he really was trying to talk that old man into telling him the stories and singing the songs so that Alfonso could record them and publish them. And the old man just refused, just refused. And Alfonso, you know, finally said, you know, if you don't do this, the stories, the ceremonies, the songs are all going to be lost when you die. The old man said, if you really want to know these songs and these stories, these ceremonies, come be my apprentice and I'll teach you everything, but no recorders. And Alfonso said, I can't do that. I'm an assistant professor at Princeton University. (laughs) I've got to go teach. And when, when Alfonso threatened him with the loss of the stories, the old man smiled and looked at Alfonso and said, Alfonso, if they're important, they'll come back. They'll all come back. So we've got to prepare our place, our now, for the coming back of all those traditions. And it won't be easy because, you know, we've lost so much language, lost the stories, the songs, many of the ceremonies, but we can still do this work. And it's important work because uh, if the truth were known, if I can turn the tables and use their word, the salvation of the white man may depend upon our doing this work. That is quite the thought here. Let's go back to the ghost dance. And and then I'd like to have your comments on this this 50-year celebration. Or is it 60? I'm not too sure. As long as it's here, that's all that counts. Movoka brought the ghost dance. Basically, he started it and he was Christian. Some Lakotas like Kicking Bear went and they brought that idea back, a basically a salvation point mentality. And if we did this dance, the white man will go away. 
But I say, well, we haven't. Did we look at really the failure of this dance because we we in, included Christianity? This is why it failed. But really, it was about not becoming a washichu in this case to greedy people. So that's what I was interpreted as, as you know, being a descendant of of the these ghost dancers. I mean, the koju is that that's why the ghost dance failed because they had accepted the the states of Christianity that there was going to be another heaven, another way to come back, and it was part of the symptoms of. The heaven, right? The the symptoms of accepting that that this is not really here. This is not real. We have to be over there because that's a better life. Or back there, bring the buffalo back. So I'm thinking that that's what made the ghost dance fail. What what do you think about that kind of far-reaching thought? I like what you're saying. Uh, I I hear that, and it makes us a lot of sense to me. Uh, yeah, the ghost dance was already heavily colonized. It was not pure American Indian worldview, but it too had become a hybrid. And uh, as a hybrid, it was not going to work. It was a nice thought, but it dealt in its own romanticism, a romanticism of getting rid of white people and bringing the buffalo back. And the buffalo may come back. But, but it's not going to happen because I go out and do a ghost dance next summer. <laughs> At least the buffalo are beginning to make a comeback on many of our reservations. Buffalo on, on the Osage Reservation these days, uh, both Osage herds and, and uh, Nature Conservancy herds. Quite a nice couple of herds of buffalo back there. Maybe that's not the mark of recovery, though, by itself. There's much more to it than that. It's much more complex now, just as 500 years of colonialism has been utterly complex. What's happened to our people has been a complex devastation. There's no easy moment to it. It's not one massacre. It, it was what Barbara Mann calls fractal massacres across the frontier, You know, one after another after another with the ever-increasing tsunami riptide that came across the continent, sweeping our people aside. Now, as that tsunami recedes, we almost have to start over again. We're not looking at Jewish notion of next year Jerusalem, but we're looking at digging in for the long term. So we've got to raise our kids to think in terms of planning for a a long-term struggle. And that struggle is now. It's not down the road. It starts now. We engage it now. We engage it every day in this present. And we can expect results today, but not a complete recovery. It's going to take as long as colonialism took. <laughs> I know we, we didn't really get into detail with the book, which is which is okay. But one final thought is it seems like we've, we've covered 500 years plus of the history that's been written about us. And now, as you say, fine, as at that time came to stir the pot. And it's still, the pot is still, the motions that he's starting is moving, but not just in earth time or native time, but in cosmological time. And that's going to have an effect on all of us. As you say, there's, there's only going to take a few few people who think these ways to 
to keep the language going, to, to keep that gem being polished. Because it takes a lot of dirt and time to make a diamond, so to speak. And I think that's what we're waiting for. It's this time of consciousness as Native people. Christianity and rejection of Christianity become the new age. And they accept these things like it means them too. Maybe it does. But to claim that they discovered these ideas is kind of dissing their own ancestors. So they take upon Native religions and, and, and even plant life, plant medicines, and they, they take it upon themselves to bring Christianity into plant medicine, such as ayahuasca or even peyote in a sense. But, you know, to me... Same thing. Yeah, doing a disservice, right? I think we talked about this last interview. But I'm thinking that the 500 years that we kind of hovered is, is not enough. So we might be doing this again. This is the, what is this, the, the 50th anniversary of the edition? It is, yeah. Tell us why you wanted to commemorate that. I think we need to remember our elders, those who've helped shape us. And, and Vine was so key to 20th century American Indian thinking and laid the foundation for 21st century American Indian thinking. We need to remember him. His book deserves to be reread by young Indians, young Indians in high school and college. Sure, we need to move beyond Vine, but we start there. You know, one of the things Vine talked about was the sacredness of land. Well, I might argue with Vine that we don't have the word sacred in our languages. That was created by the missionaries who needed a word to match their holy. Because what's a sacred place? Isn't every place our grandmother? But Vine was on to something there, talking about the personality of the land in different places. Because there are different Wanagi invested in the land in different places. So a lake may have a particular Wanagi, our word for spirit. We, a mountain may have a different Wanagi. A tree might have a particular Wanagi. So we recognize those places and go there for ceremony. The bottom line, however, is I want my kids and young Indians today to remember that they have a relationship with this grandmother who has generated all of life, that she can't be reduced to property uh, so that the cry, the mantra, Indian mantra now, across Turtle Island today of land back, for me is one of the most important movements uh, I've witnessed in my life, I think. I've seen a lot of them with uh, you know, Alcatraz and Wounded Knee and, and, and a lot of other moments, but land back is a cry to recognize relationships again. It's a cry to get our cultures back, our languages back. You mentioned going up in the mountains and building a fire. Grandfather fire. Another ancestor that we need to be in relationship with and to remember and to honor by continuing to build those fires. But we build them in particular places on the land. And that's where we go to meet that grandfather. And when we're there meeting that grandfather, we're standing on grandmother and we're relating with her even as we relate with him. So that's, I guess, maybe a starter message that I'd leave young Indians with today. 
And Vine would appreciate it. I want to say that. Vine would certainly appreciate what I'm arguing. One little caveat. I hear the words in community circles here, humans. They always say connection. It's hard for them to say relationship. <laughs> you see where? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. There's an energy here. I feel connected to it. Yeah, that's New Age. That, that's Euro-Christian. That's not American Indian. When I go outside and stand on the green belt outside my town home, when I walk over to that maple tree and put my hand on that tree, I'm in relationship with grandmother, in relationship with that tree, in relationship with those bunnies that poop all over the sidewalk. <laughs> you smell the bunnies and all that. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. That's what's important is being in relationship. But at this point, our Euro-Christian relatives don't yet feel deep inside of themselves that relationship. Connection is the closest they can come to it. In his autobiography, Russ Means said something about that. Until you feel it in your heart, until you live it out of your experience and not just intellectualize it, you're, you're not where American Indians are. Kind of like we make it up as we go along so we could, can get by till the next trendy term comes along, right? <laughs> but hey, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you here. I love that word, Wanaki. That's part of my name. Is uh, it means the same thing, spirit? Yeah, right? yeah. Say as it does in Lakota. So it's good to to see you and and um, talk with you and understand some things that I that I need to, to be refreshed with and learn new ones. So thank you, Tink, for being here on First Voices. Enjoy being with you. We'll do it again. Ah, doksha ake telo. Dr. Tink Tinker, Wasaji Nation or the Osage Nation, speaking to us about the 50th anniversary release party, so to speak, of Vine Deloya's God is Red. This is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokazin Ghost Horse. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Free.